It's our privilege to present this message from the teaching ministry of Reverend George DeYoung as part of the Fruit from Under the Fig Tree. George DeYoung is the founder of Under the Fig Tree Ministries, an organization dedicated to helping people understand the power of God's Word in its Jewish context to equip them to impact their culture. George helps us understand the message of Christ by experiencing the world of the Bible. We pray you're challenged and encouraged by the Word of God as George brings us this teaching from the text. Now, let's see with our eyes, hear with our ears, and set our hearts on what God desires as we join George recorded live on location. The passage of Scripture which I just shared with you is from Psalm 33. I love Psalm 33. I love those verses. And what I would like to think with you this morning about is Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees. I want to think with you about seeing. And when, when I say that, I, I'd like to think with you basically just two things. Uh, I want to think with you a little bit about God's seeing as how does God see? How does he see? And then I want to think with you about what does God see? Or what is God seeking? So first of all, let's think about how does God see? Well, I would say that God sees with, first of all, loving eyes. That might not be a big surprise to you. In fact, that you might have anticipated the first of this part of the message. How does God see? Well, God's got to see with loving eyes because God is love. He's at his essence. There's love. He sees with loving eyes. So whatever he sees, wherever he looks at, you got to understand, he sees with loving eyes. And when he sees us, I, I love that passage. It's found in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now let me just set it up for you a little bit. Deuteronomy is the last of the five books of Moses. The Pentateuch, you'll hear it called sometimes. If we have our Jewish friends with us, they would call it the Torah, the five books of Moses. I often call it Torah. And, and Deuteronomy is the fifth book. And Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament. These are the words that Moses spoke to the Israelite people just before he dies and before they cross the Jordan River as they are led by God through his servant Joshua. So they have already come out of Egypt They've already been at Sinai. They've already received the Ten Commandments. They've lived with God at the center of the temple, at the center of the camp, with the tabernacle at the center for 40 years in the wilderness. And, and, and now they have come and they are on the plains of Moab. Some of you have been there with me. You know right where that is. You can see it right now. And right across, you can see Jericho. And the people in Jericho could see across the plains of Moab, and they could see this mass of God's people. And we would learn later on that Rahab, who would befriend God's people, because she would tell the spies who would come and check out Jericho, she said, the fear of the Lord is throughout all the land. Israel had grown to be a powerful nation. Now Moses is talking to Israel and in Deuteronomy chapter 7 he wants them to understand this because they've come out of Egypt they've been oppressed they've been redeemed they've been delivered they've been healed they've grown they have a reputation that in places where, where other people perish they thrive and the fear of God, if that's what he can do with them, 
What if we're against their God? What will he do to us? And Moses says to the people, he says these words, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. Remember the psalmist says, blessed is the nation who is, whose God is the Lord. Blessed are the people who he chooses as his inheritance. That's what Moses is talking about. The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest. In the Hebrew, the fewest means there weren't many of them, and that's a good, that's a good translation. But literally, you were the littlest. I mean, you were the smallest. You were just, the rabbis look at this and they say, you were just a baby nation. You were just an infant nation. You were just born as a people of God. The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples or you're more powerful or, no, 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 for, for you were the smallest of all peoples. No, it was because the Lord loved you. Now, there are several words in Hebrew for love. Let me give you this one. This one's a familiar one to you. I mentioned it quite a, quite a few times in messages. The Hebrew word for love here is ahav. Say ahav. Isn't that a nice word to say? The word ahav means love or desire. The word ahav means also to breathe after. Isn't that interesting? Ah. If I'm coming home from a trip and Beth meets me in the airport, oftentimes this happens and I see her and she sees me and we come and we just hug and I go, ah, God loves you. It wasn't because you were more numerous or you were more powerful. Indeed, you were just a little baby. It was because the Lord ahaved you. I like to put it this way. It's because you took God's breath away. God didn't choose you because you were more numerous or that you were more powerful. He chose you because you were just a little baby. You were just the littlest. You were the smallest because he loved you and you take his breath away. God looks at you with loving eyes. But God also looks at you with strong eyes. You, you know, I advocate that everybody should have a life verse. My life verse, I've told you this before, is Ezekiel 40, verse 4, where the man of God says to Ezekiel, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and set your hearts on everything I want to show you because that's why I brought you here. Now go tell Israel. And that's really my, my ministry, and that's, that's what God has shaped me and gifted me and I'm trying to steward those gifts as best as I can to help people to see with their eyes, to hear with their ears. And it's their job to set their hearts on what God wants to show them and just, just to understand that none of us are here by accident. We're all here by the intention of God. And my job is to help you see things that otherwise you don't have the tools or you, you, you didn't see or to hear things otherwise you might not hear you know what, in seeing, the more you begin to see in God's word, the more you begin to have strong eyes. There is, in, in the biblical narrative, there's a, a story, and again, from the Hebrew text. And because it begins this way, you know it's not gonna turn out well. It's in the book of Genesis chapter 27. And the chapter begins this, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see. His eyes were so weak he could no longer see. Now the rabbis look at that and they say, not only is the Bible talking about his physical eyes, the Bible is talking about his spiritual eyes. Because we know this is the opening sentence of the story where Jacob 
steals the birthright of Esau. And it's always a problem with that story because when Jacob and Esau were born, we're told, kind of on the backhand, that God speaks to Rachel and God says, listen, the older will serve the younger. In other words, the promise is with Jacob. Now this story happens when they're young men. And it's time for the blessing to go upon the one who will carry on the family name. And culture and tradition always has that as the older one. But there must have been evidence. There must have been something more that would help people to understand. And when you pull apart that narrative and you look at who Esau was and who Jacob was, and you knew if you had the eyes to see that the blessing should go with Jacob. But Isaac didn't see that. Isaac's eyes were dim because he valued his son Esau and he valued his lifestyle and he, he valued the food that Esau would bring him and, and the rabbis would say, how could he? Because it's not kosher, it's not, Esau is not the one of promise. But Isaac didn't see that. Isaac had weak eyes. He had weak eyes. There are people kind of like Isaac. People like Isaac who are part of the people of promise. Isaac's one of the patriarchs. That's a pretty big deal. Part of the people of promise. And they're part of God's covenant plan. He's part of God's kingdom purposes. But as his life unfolds, he gets, I don't know if he gets so used to it, it becomes more passive as he gets older or whatever, but his eyesight begins to fail so that he can't even identify where God's working and how God's working anymore. It's just himself and what he likes. The text begins, when Isaac was old, his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see. And if he could have seen, I would suggest to you, Jacob would have still got the blessing because Isaac would have seen. Look at this. Then Moses, this is Deuteronomy 34. This is the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah, first verse. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo, and there the Lord showed him the whole land. Folks, I've been on top of Mount Nebo a bunch of times. I've been on top of Mount Nebo when you could barely see the Dead Sea because of the dust in the wind. All this dust is gathered up from these great winds in Africa and, and blown across. It's called loose, and it brings kind of a soil. And I remember one time in February, I was in Israel, and there was such a dust storm from this dust that comes from Africa. We had to pull on the side of the road. It reminded me of, of a blizzard conditions here in western Michigan. I've been on top of Mount Nebo when you could see across the Dead Sea, and you could see for miles, but no matter how many miles you could see, you can't physically see all the things that God says that Moses saw unless you have really good eyesight. And I think in this text, Moses saw those things because Moses began to see with the eyes of God. He could see through things that for other people would be obstacles. And I think this is the Bible's way of saying that Moses was so spiritually in tune with God he was so spiritually in tune with God. I, I, I don't know if Moses knew when he left the camp that morning, this would be the last time he left the camp. I don't know as he climbed that mountain that he thought this is the last time I'm climbing a mountain. Now God, I have to climb the mountain to get the 10 commandments. Now I have to climb the mountain to die. But Moses climbs the mountain. I think he did. I think he gained a perspective that he was able to see in such a way that he could see now with the eyes of God and he could see things in his past and he could see things in his present 
And as he scoped out the land, he saw the future of God's people. And he could see through the mountains, and he could see through the walls, and he could see through the dust, and he could see through the clouds, and he could see through it all. You know, you get that with Jesus sometimes. Jesus is in a crowd of people, and he teaches something, and all of a sudden, he knows what's in their hearts. He could see right through them. His eyes of God. He's got good eyes. He's got strong eyes. Really strong eyes. See, God gives us a hint of what strong eyes are capable of. You know the verse I'm bringing up here. You say, he's got to be going to 1 Samuel chapter 16, where the Lord, we're told, does not see as man sees. Oh, no, no, no. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is the anointing of David to be king. And David was the eighth son of Jesse. He was the smallest one. He was out taking care into the sheep. In fact, when Jesse brought all of his sons in front of Samuel, he didn't even think of David. He didn't even consider David one of his sons in that respect. He was so small. <laughs> yeah, but you don't understand that God sees. He's got strong eyes. He just doesn't see your past. He just doesn't see your present. He sees your potential. He looks at your heart. God's got strong eyes. Jesus has strong eyes. Moses had strong eyes. Isaac had weak eyes. We've talked together about how God sees. Now I want to think with you in the time that we have left over what God seeks after. What is it that God seeks after? This is one of my favorite passages, and I think for some of you, one of your favorites as well. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those hearts who are fully committed to him. So what does God seek after? He's looking for hearts that are fully committed to him. Psalm 33. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. He says basically the same thing. The story I want to think with you about, and maybe we're going to look at this story and you will experience what I experienced this week. I learned something altogether new about a story that I thought I knew altogether well. Mark chapter 5. Got your Bibles? Get your Bibles open to Mark chapter 5. Let me set up the story for you. Jesus is going along, and there's a guy by the name of Jairus coming to him. And Jairus comes to him and says, Hey, Jesus, listen, I, my daughter is so sick. Would you come to my house to heal her? which is kind of interesting because Jesus has been known that even as he's on the way to somewhere, people will come up to him and say, listen, uh, I, we got this uh, Roman friend of ours and he tells us don't even come to his house, just give the word and it's gonna ha you, it'll be done. Jairus comes to him and says, well, I need you to come to my house. Well, Jesus doesn't complain. He says, okay, well, okay. He, he, he follows the guy. And as he's walking along, there's this woman and this woman, Mark tells us, has an issue of blood. It's probably an issue with her menstrual cycle. Basically, it never stops. A couple of things are happening here. Number one, the fact that it's an issue of blood makes her unclean. And this has been going on for years. So she has lived apart from God, apart from the temple, apart from the priests. She's been cut off because of the ritual purity laws in the Torah that says you know, a woman with an issue, you, you can't come in. And, and once that cycle is over for you, then you have to be made clean and you do a mikvah, you do a ritual bath and you come out of it clean and dedicated to God and then you go to the temple. But this woman, her menstrual cycle never stopped. So she's unclean. But number two, this just strikes me because as a man, I can't really identify with this, but, but I can identify with it if you understand what I mean. And 
And this issue of blood results in kind of a perpetual tiredness, weakness, probably a low iron count. And so this woman is not firing in all eight cylinders. I mean, she's just weak. Well, Jesus is walking along on the way to this guy's house, and there's all these crowds around him, and this woman comes up, Mark tells us, and she gets a hold of the hem of his garment. The, in Greek, it's called the craspidon, the corner. And there's something going on there. And we've shared this before, some of us. That corner of his garment was where his seat seat. That's those little tassels on the garments. That's where Jesus would have had his tassels. He would have worn those tassels. And those tassels would speak to just the way the knots are tied and the number of tassels there are and the colors that are involved speak to God's covenantal promises. And the prophets said that when the Messiah would come, he would bring healing in his corners or healing in his wings. The Hebrew word for corners and wings is the same thing. So the corners of his garment had these tassels he would have. And so this woman comes along and she grabs his craspidon. I would suggest his tassel. And immediately, immediately, she's healed. You know, you know the story. Come with me now, because I want to pick it up here at verse number 32. Mark 5, 32. You're there with me? Now, nah, let's go back up to 29. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body, see, because she's been so weak, low iron count and everything, she felt in her body that when she was freed from her suffering, finally I have a good day. Finally I have a good day. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, I gotta tell you, is Jesus in a good mood or a bad mood? Let me read a little bit further. We'll go back and ask that question again. He turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and you, yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. Is Jesus in a good mood or a bad mood? What do you think? Now, I know this woman is grabbing and she's healed, and so her faith has been has been rewarded but you know I get a feeling that this is one of those times where somebody stole some of his power wait 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 wait! somebody touched me what do you mean who touched you look at all the people they're all touching him no and, and periplepto is the word of Jesus standing looking around he's looking he's seeing and the word of periplepto is like basically I'm not moving Just sometimes in a worship service or in a Sunday evening I'm gonna I'll, I'll ask a question I'm saying I'm not <laughs> not gonna go on any further until somebody answers and somebody answers, and we can go on further. Periblepto means Jesus is scanning. Okay, who touched me? Who touched me? Now, that's interesting, because we just said earlier that this whole sermon begins with the name of God, Jehovah Jireh, God who sees, <laughs> God who provides. And apparently Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, but apparently the all-seeing God can't see very much right now. Who touched me? Is he in a good mood? What tone of voice would you give there when you read this story? Would you read it this way? Now, once Jesus realized that power had gone from him, and he turned around to the crowd and asked, touch my clothes? Well, you see all the people crowded against you, said the disciples. Yet you ask, who touched me? And Jesus kept looking around. I, see, I get a feeling of this story. And then this woman, okay, he's standing, and he's not moving. He's not moving. I'm not going anywhere. Mm-mm, nah. And so this woman comes up to him. What does your Bible say? Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and what's your Bible said? With fear, trembling with fear. Is that a happy thing or a bad thing? Okay, so Jesus does this miracle, but he doesn't know he's done it. Somebody ripped him off. Somebody swiped some of his power. 
So he stands there and says, hey, who touched me? Disciples said, who can you say? I'm not moving. I'm peri-bleptoing here, baby. So this woman now, she comes, <laughs> oh, fear and trembling. That's the way I always thought it. That's the way I always thought of it. I always thought that Jesus got kind of pickpocketed. A miracle got pickpocketed from Jesus. He didn't know what was happening, doesn't like that. No, he wants, to be, he wants to be in the driver's seat of all of his miracles. But you know what? I thought trembling with fear. I thought that's an interesting idiom, isn't it? Trembling with fear. Another way to say it is fear and trembling. <laughs> trembling with fear, fear and trembling. And then I did a bit of research on fear and trembling. Because this is an idiom used by Paul in his epistles several times. Now, Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. So Paul is a man very intimately understanding uh, the Torah. He, I mean, he's memorized all five books of Moses, without a doubt, without a doubt. And he understands that in the Bible, in, the, in his Bible, in our Bible, in the Torah, that God basically says that people will be in fear and trembling of his people because of what God's doing through them. Several times, there's one in Exodus 15, there's several times in the Hebrew text. And so I, I'm looking at this passage and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I come across this scholar who gives me this definition of the idiom of fear and trembling. Listen to this. Trembling and fear, or fear and trembling, describes the human reaction to God's power in protecting his people. An overwhelming sense of responsibility to God for one's action in a particular situation. That's from the New International Greek Testament commentary. Professor Marie J. Harris. Let me read that one more time. Trembling and fear, or fear and trembling, describes the human reaction to God's power and protecting his people. In other words, this woman comes with fear, not fear as if she's done something wrong, but fear in the sense of fear of the Lord, that all of a sudden God has earned my trust. God has earned my respect. God has earned my worship. God has earned my awe, not because he's so far in distance or not because he's some judge who scares me straight. He's a God who loves me, who sacrifices for me. The trembling is more of excitement. It's not that she was hiding, but I have a feeling Jesus is going. He's on the way. There are crowds around him. She gets in there. She grabs his craspadon. All of a sudden, for the first time in decades, she feels healthy. She feels strong. She can be with God. She's been with God. And when anybody comes with fear and trembling before God, that fear and trembling is an idiom which says that this person recognizes that they are in the presence and they've been saved by God. And then what does she do? Then the woman, knowing all that happened to her, came with fell at his feet, fear and trembling, not because she's scared, because she's happy. Her fear is a fear of worship, a respect, a trust in God, and her trembling is a trembling with excitement. And she told him the whole truth. In other words, she told him her story. You've got to understand how hard it was for me to come to you because I didn't want to make anybody else unclean for me to get this close to you and not touch other people and to touch you. And she said, I've got to tell you, Jesus, I, I was really concerned about touching you too because I didn't want to make you unclean. But I so believe, I so believe that I grabbed your tzitzit, I grabbed your corner of your, I, I grabbed your wing, I grabbed, I grabbed your craspadon, and you healed me. 
I've been healed of God. I've been healed of God through you. And my bleeding has stopped and now I'm made whole. And she told him the whole truth. She told him the whole story. Who touched me? Oh, the Lord watches all mankind from heaven. From his dwelling place, he sees all peoples, but his eye, his eye is on those who love him and whose hope is in his everlasting love. You know what Jesus says to this woman? Do you know what he says to her after she tells him the whole story? He says, go, your faith has made you well. You and I both know, don't we, that in the book of Hebrews, we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's in verse 6, but way back in verse 1 of chapter 11, it tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. But she did see, but she didn't see, but she did see. She saw with her eyes in such a way that it moved her life, and she touched Jesus. Have you been unclean this week? Has your browser opened up on a web page that it should have never opened by accident or by intention? And you've seen things of other people that you should never see with your eyes? Have you been unclean this week? Have you said things to someone who is not your wife that should never be said to someone like that? Have you done things with someone who is not your husband that should never be done? Have you caressed? Have you whispered? Have you kissed and made yourself altogether unclean? This morning's a time when we come and what God is looking for this morning is a people whose hope is in his everlasting love. And that's exactly what God is looking for this morning. He's got eyes. He remembers who you are. He remembers that you're dust. He knows how you were formed. That's exactly what he's looking for. He's looking with strong eyes. He can look through all the things that other people look at. They can't see, but he sees. And he's looking for people who will reach out and touch him. Touch me. I've been struggling with alcohol. But this week I reached out and I touched Jesus and he gave me power and he gave me strength and then my need for that flow and I don't need it anymore. This week I reached out and touched Jesus. My mouth has been nothing but verbal vomit. I sing God's praises in here but when you hear me on the work site, I'm telling you, some people wonder if I could eat with this mouth. But I reached out and I touched Jesus. I understand that salt water and fresh water can't flow from the same stream and I want to be fresh. I want living water. I reached out and I touched Jesus. I would love for us to get together and tell how he touched Jesus, how he grabbed the hem of his garment with healing in his wings. That's what God's looking for. I'll tell you what he's not looking for with the people who have come to know Jesus as many of you I know have known him. In a fellowship like ours, to go through an entire week and at the end of the week, Jesus stands up and says, will somebody touch me? Please, somebody touch me. See, we have a God who sees and he sees with strong eyes. He sees with loving eyes. You take his breath away. Every one of you and all of you are worth Jesus to God. He doesn't have to, but if he had to, knowing the, what he knows, seeing his son on that cross, if he had to do it all over again, he, he doesn't have to, but he'd do it because that's what you are worth. You 
are worth Jesus to God. He sees you and he sees me with loving eyes. But he also sees us with strong eyes. He doesn't look at the outward. He goes right through the... And one day somebody touched Jesus. But I think when Jesus stopped and asked who touched me, he knew exactly who touched him. And as he scanned that crowd, I have a feeling that he knew exactly who. And when his eyes met her eyes, she knew that he knew and he knew that she knew. And she came to him with a kind of strength that she hadn't experienced in years, a kind of wholeness that she hadn't, because she had touched Jesus, and she came to him as anybody who recognizes the act of God in their life. They came with trust and fear and trembling of excitement, and she told him her story. She told him the whole truth. I think one of the ways that Jesus demonstrates his pleasure, one of the most powerful ways that he demonstrates his pleasure that he says, yes, that's it. Yes, that's what I'm here for. Yes, that's it. The way Jesus does it, he doesn't go fist pump. Yes. What he does, he says, go. Your faith has made you well. Because that's what brings a smile to his face and to his father's face. I have to tell you, make no mistake, this message, I'm praying it's God's words. He may be using my voice. But this message is as much for me as it is for you. Because this past week, there have been unclean things in my life, and there have been unclean things in your life. And some of these unclean things have been preventing us from growing in our walk with God, have been separating us from God. And I'm telling you, Jesus is passing through, and you would be a fool, a fool indeed, not to grab a hold of him, because he sees. Would you please stand? Pray with me, please. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, sovereign over all. We bless you and we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. You are Jehovah Jireh. You are the God who provides. Your provision is because you are the God who sees. You see. And you see us with loving eyes. And we can get a sense of what that means. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we're so strong. It's not because we've accomplished these degrees or built a business or built... No. It's because we're the smallest. And you see us with strong eyes. As the great physician, you look through all the facade and you say, this is what's broken. And then you come and you stand amongst us this morning as you stood in the middle of that crowd, peribleptoine, <laughs> scanning us. Who touched me? If not now, then today, if not today, then this week. Lord, we not only touch, we embrace. And the wholeness that you are becomes us. And the life that you are is our life. And the light that you are becomes our light. And we shine in the living of our lives to your honor and to your glory. For we truly are. We are blessed to be the people you have chosen for your inheritance. Beloved, may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his shalom, both now and forevermore. Amen. It's our desire that this teaching by George DeYoung has encouraged you to walk more closely in the dust of our Rabbi Yeshua. 
please visit us on the web at www.underthefigtree.org or write to us at Under the Fig Tree, P.O. Box 1256, Holland, Michigan, 49423. Please remember George and this ministry in your prayers. Under the Fig Tree is a nonprofit organization that's solely dependent on your tax-deductible contributions. We very much appreciate your support. Now go and tell Israel. And until next time, may the shalom of the Lord guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.